The recordings you hear on the Boombox Show were loaned for the purposes of promotion and remain the property of their respective composers, artists, and record labels. There is a need for the soundtrack to the second greatest generation, the post-war generation, the Cold War generation, the baby boomers, the largest segment of voters in U.S. history, the largest tax base on Earth, the Vietnam generation, the Equal Rights generation, the Whole Earth Catalog generation, the first generation to see the whole Earth from the moon, and the first to see the dark side of the moon. The first generation raised by TV, the last generation to read a book. The generation that didn't have internet or cell phones, so we invented them, generation. The first generation to hear the Beatles. The generation who didn't trust anyone over 30. The rock and roll generation. The Woodstock generation. Generation FM. This is the Boombox Show. Turn it up.
Spend my days with a woman unkind Smoke my stuff and drink all my wine Made up my mind, make a new star Going to California with an A.K.M. in my heart Someone told me there's a girl out there With love in her eyes and flowers in her hair On a big jet plane Never let them tell you That we're all the same oh, The sea was red And the sky was gray One that had tomorrow Could ever follow today Mountains and the canyons Start to tremble and shake The children of the sun begin
Think continually of those who were truly great. The poet is Stephen Spender. Near the snow, near the sun, in the highest fields, see how these names are fated by the waving grass. Dog Hammarskjöld, Medgar Evers, John F. Kennedy. And by the streamers of white clouds and whispers of wind in the listening sky. Rudolf Anderson, Virgil Grissom, Edward White, Roger Chaffee, Vladimir Komarov. The names of those who in their lives fought for life, who wore at their hearts the fire's center. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Robert Kennedy. Born of the sun, they traveled a short while toward the sun and left the vivid air signed with their honor. Muskets and muffled drums along the Potomac. Drums of independence along the Congo and the Niger. Warning klaxons at Cape Canaveral. 
sirens and broken glass in Watts, Washington, Harlem, Newark, and Detroit. Fire hoses, barking dogs, and sobbing children in Birmingham, Johannesburg, and Milan. Computers, synchronous satellites, laser beams, heart transplants, DNA, DDT, DMZ, ABM, LSD. We stood knee-deep in garbage while reaching for the moon. We came by our miracles easier than we were able to manage them. The decade began with promise and warning. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed. Master, I am troubled. We learn to make powerful the force of our bodies. Yet we are taught to reverence all against whom we may use such force. When your life is threatened, or the innocent life of another, you will be prepared to defend them. Being thus prepared, better than others, should I not always stand and fight? Ignore the insulting tongue. Duck the provoking blow. Run from the assault of the straw. Are these not the actions of a coward? The wild boar runs from the tiger knowing that each, being well-armed by nature with deadly strength, may kill the other. Running, he saves his own life and that of the tiger. This is not cowardice. It is the love of life. The Boombox.
Boombox Show. When I was a kid in school, I didn't do very well. It's not easy getting from the back of the bus to the front of the class in Mississippi. I don't mind jazz influencing church music, but I still prefer amen to one more time. finally convinced me to stop looking at the dark side of things. Now the only convinced the real estate people. When you live in a poor neighborhood, you're living in an area where you have to have poor schools. When you have poor schools, you have poor teachers. When you have poor teachers, you get a poor education. Poor education, you can only work on a poor paying job. And that poor paying job enables you to live again in a poor neighborhood. So it's a very vicious cycle. I'll never forget the man who taught me English in the eighth grade. He told us to think about what we wanted to be. I said, I wanted to be a lawyer. He said, you need to think about something you can be, like a carpenter. You've got good grades, Malcolm, and people like you, but a lawyer is not a realistic goal. And you've got to be realistic, Malcolm. You're a nigger. Them that's got shall have them that's not shall lose so the bible says and it still is news mama may have papa may have but god bless the child that's got his own that's got his own Yes, the strong gets more While the weak ones fade Empty pockets don't Ever make the grade Mama may have Papa may have But God bless the child That's got his own that's got his own. The Boombox. ghetto. This is called the get out of the ghetto blues. I know you think you're cool. Lord, if they bust your kids to school.
I know you think you're cool Just cause they bust your kids to school But you ain't got a thing to lose You just got to get out of the ghetto blue If you getting two welfare checks You done told me you think you're cool Because you're getting two welfare checks Don't get you in the wash, the Lord knows he'll catch you in the rinse. I know, I know you think you're cool. Just cause you shooting that stuff in your arm.
was sick and tired Living in a town filled with narrow minds and hate They used to laugh at me Their children called me names I would run and hide Feeling so ashamed just for being born I was just a boy punished for a crime that was not mine gratified to note the progress in the effort by white and Negro citizens to end an ugly situation in Birmingham, Alabama. I've made it clear since assuming the presidency that I would use all available means to protect human rights and uphold the law of the land. Through mediation and persuasion, and where that effort has failed, through lawsuits and court actions, we have attempted to meet our responsibilities in this most difficult field where federal court orders have been circumvented, ignored, or violated. We have committed all the power of the federal government to ensure respect and obedience 
of court decisions and the law of the land. In the city of Birmingham, the Department of Justice some time ago instituted an investigation into voting discrimination. It supported in the Supreme Court an attack on the city's segregation ordinances. We have, in addition, been watching the present controversy to detect any violation of the federal civil rights or other statutes. In the absence of such violations or any other federal jurisdiction, our efforts have been focused on getting both sides together to settle in a peaceful fashion. The very real abuses too long inflicted on the Negro citizens of that community. I pray that God will bless you in everything that you do. I pray that you will grow intellectually so that you can understand the problems of the world and where you fit into in that world picture. And I pray that all the fear that has ever been in your heart will be taken out. And when you look at that man, if you know he's nothing but a coward, you won't fear him. If he wasn't a coward, he wouldn't gang up on you. This is how they function. They function in mouth. That's a coward. They put on a sheet so you won't know who they are. That's a coward. No. The time will come when that sheet will be ripped off. If the federal government doesn't take it off, we'll take it off. The Boombox Show. As the snow flies On a cold and gray Chicago morning A poor little baby child is born in the ghetto And his mama cries Cause if there's one thing she don't need Is another hungry mouth to feed in the ghetto Well, don't you understand The child needs a helping hand He'll grow to be an angry young man someday I Take a look at you and me Are we too blind to see? Do we simply turn our heads and look the other way? Well, the world turns Every little boy with a runny nose Plays in the street as the cold wind blows in the ghetto And his hunger burns So he starts to roam the streets at night And he learns how to steal and he learns how to fight in the ghetto Then one night in desperation, the young man breaks away. He buys a gun, he steals a car, tries to run, but he don't get far. And his mama cries. As a crowd gathers round, an angry young man face down in the street with a gun in his hand in the ghetto. And as her young man dies, On a cold and gray Chicago morning, another little baby child is born in the ghetto. And his mama cries.
winter's day in the rain white bird in a golden cage alone the leaves blow
Episode 1 by Joseph Dean Coburn. Part 1. Who, When, Where. Stop, or I'll shoot, yelled Otis. And to God, the man's name was Otis Fensel, and he was a cop in my hometown. When Otis yelled, stop or I'll shoot, every teenage boy in town knew to stop running. If he yelled it the second time, Otis felt more or less obliged to go on ahead and shoot you. Otis was a fair shot. He put three teenage boys in the hospital while on the force. Now, since Otis had only yelled and had not shot, John kept running. John Mack's name suited him. John looked like that bulldog hood ornament that you see on the trucks that bear his name. Running down an alley while carrying a 1957 Chevy transmission and his tools was a testament to growing up in the wilds of North Idaho. And good genes. The second warning and the first shot hit John simultaneously. Evidently, Otis felt threatened by this young man running away in the dark and burdened by 300 pounds of auto parts. The boy was, after all, carrying a transmission and might well have thrown it at Otis, causing a nasty bump. So, lethal force was demanded, and right soon, John kept running. Otis got pissed. Guys are supposed to stop when he yells stop. He's the police. They're sure as heck supposed to stop when he shoots him. So he shot him again. And then he yelled, Halt or I'll shoot you again, you bitch." John kept running. He slowed down considerably, but he kept running just the same. Otis drew a fine bead on John's back. There were 75, 85 feet between them now. John dropped his tools, but he kept moving and clutching the transmission. Otis let out once more, Stop or by God I will shoot you dead. A short pause, a deep breath, a loud crack, and John dropped the transmission. Then John stopped running. It took four days for John to get the transmission back into the 57 Chevy from which he had taken the thing. Three of those days, he was in the hospital, though. On day five, he was back in school. He was pretty embarrassed by the whole episode. I'd have to go to court with his dad. The owner of the 57 Chevy was not pressing charges since John put the transmission back. The transmission was probably in better shape after John reinstalled it. Still, John had done some damage to three of Otis Fensel's bullets. City property, after all, and he would have to face the consequences in a court of law. Otis's girlfriend worked at the restaurant where I washed dishes. Whenever he came through the kitchen door for a visit, I'd dive under my prep sink and yell, Don't shoot me, Otis! It was always good for a laugh, and better yet on those occasions when Otis would actually pull his gun on me. <laughs> We'd laugh, and he'd help me up, and then give his gal a smooch. These were the kinds of people and the sorts of events that surrounded my formative years. This is the story of the year I was 16, the most important year of my life, the greatest year of the 20th century, 1968. January had already seen some of the most bitter fighting in Vietnam at Khe Sanh. The Marines, outnumbered and under constant siege, held their ground, but the media sided with the Viet Cong, calling the battle controversial. Meanwhile, a B-52 crashed in Greenland, discharging four nuclear bombs. 
The cover-up of that is so perfect that you've probably never heard of it before. A pivotal moment in TV when Laugh-In first aired. The Tet Offensive began. The North Vietnamese regulars got close enough to attack the U.S. Embassy in Saigon in the South. Three college students were killed in South Carolina protesting a white-only bowling alley. By the end of February, Mr. Rogers opened his neighborhood to America. The Tet Offensive ended, and Frankie Lyman was found dead from a heroin overdose in Harlem. Idaho winters can get cold. Sometimes they'd pile the snow up in the middle of the main street in Coeur d'Alene, Sherman Avenue, six feet high, separating the east and westbound lanes. It got particularly cold over the pass of what would become I-90 between Coeur d'Alene and Wallace, Idaho, in the winter of 68. The dry snowflakes were giants, as large as your fist, and they seemed to explode on the windshield. Visibility was not good with all that powder reflected in the headlights, so it was not uncommon to hit a roadside reflector from time to time. On just such a night, Del Shaw and I had hit 39 of them in succession. We were going for number 40 when there came a thumping on the roof of the cab of the truck. Now, some moments must be spent on the truck, as it was a central character in all the adventures of my 16th year. Technically, the truck was a 1956 Ford pickup, but the bed and frame had been chopped and the rear suspension beefed up for hauling trailers across country. It could be outfitted with a tow bar or a 500-gallon barrel for spreading oil on dirt roads. The bumpers were fabricated of railroad rails welded to the frame, it had 750-15 dually tires on the rear. It had 750-15 dualies on the rear, an 8,000-pound PTO winch on the front, a flathead six high-torque, low-horsepower engine, and a jimmy that provided 12 speeds forward and three in reverse. You put chains on the dualies, and the truck was, in a word, unstoppable. The cab must have been red at some time, and some old phone company lockers had been bolted to the rear and painted black. One locker, the width of the cab, was sufficient in depth and height to accommodate three beer kegs packed in ice with the taps running out of the top of the locker. So every kegger party of distinction had been hosted by the truck. Parked at a campsite entrance off of some abandoned logging road, Fees of three to five dollars were collected, and revelers all knew the truck on sight. There was a handheld flagman sign that we kept behind the seat in the cab. On one side of the sign, it read the traditional stop, and on the other side, where it normally read slow, it read, well, a word that implied enjoy having intercourse. Anyway, the sign held at the entrance to a kegger always got a respectful nod from attendees, and they endorsed the spirit. The result of this immediate and authoritative presence was that when people inevitably asked, where can I get another beer, well, the answer was always, over at the truck. Hence the name. The truck did not belong to any single person as far as anyone knew. Uh, word was that at one time it was the property of One Shot Charlie down in Harrison, Idaho. One Shot had apparently loaned the truck to my grandfather on the condition that it be returned if needed. Its license plates came off of my grandfather's Nash from 1963. 
K-9, the plate read. K was the designation for Kootenai County, Idaho, and 9 because Grandpa was always the ninth fellow in line to buy new plates for his car. He wanted K-9 because he thought his old Nash was a dog. In retrospect, it may have been the first vanity plate. The pounding Dell and I heard on the cab roof was a predetermined signal that it was time to drain Uncle Wayne. I stopped the truck on the shoulder of the highway just shy of reflector number 40. Dell had been designated as windshield wiper motor. He worked a pair of vice grips side to side that clutched to the wiper's armature under the dashboard. That kept the big stuff off. The defroster in the truck worked great, but the heater, not at all. We exited the cab and began to unleash a World War II vintage stretcher that was tied to the tops of the truck lockers. Pivoting and swinging one end of the stretcher sideways to the curbside of the lockers, we were able to tilt one edge of the stretcher upward until it was nearly perpendicular to the bed of the truck. In short order, a yellow stream emitted and landed warmly in the snowbank at the side of the road. "'How you doing, Uncle Wayne?' I asked. Wayne whined something agreeable. I asked him if he needed anything. He shook his bottle of pain pills and waved a half-empty pint of vodka in my direction and smiled his perennial smile. We lashed him back to the top of the lockers, tucked him in, and entered the truck. We were taking Uncle Wayne to Wallace to get him laid. Now, how Wayne came to break his back was not clear. His body cast looked like a pair of plaster coveralls with shoulder straps, a functional opening to allow nature's business, and legs to just below his calves. Even bundled up as he was, he looked like he was wearing iron plating. But with Wayne in that cast, there was no way to get him into the cab of the truck. Carefully lashed to the lockers of the truck and bundled against the rigors of Idaho winters, well, he could easily be transported the necessary distance to Wallace and the comforts to be found there. There were five brothels in downtown Wallace, all on the same street, all on the second floors, all with the exception of one next door to one another on the same block. The Lux, the Luxette, the Lucky, the Oasis, and the Arment Rooms had all been open and serving the silver miners in Wallace since after the Civil War. It was rumored that some of the original staff were still on duty. The Luxette was above the only 24-hour restaurant in town, located at the end of the street. We were going to the Luxette. Uncle Wayne was a short, fat, bald, myopic, long-haul trucker with a penchant for getting slit-eyed pretty much every day. It was unknown whose uncle Uncle Wayne was, but he was known to one and all as either Uncle Wayne or Wayne Wino. He was the most agreeable fellow one could ever hope to meet. He even smiled in his sleep. When he slept, it was usually on the floor of the Killian's living room, with his head propped up on a 75-pound basset hound named Amanda Jane. Wayne would stretch out in front of the fireplace, lay his head on Mandy. Mandy would heave and fart, and Wayne would smile. Wayne had a custom-built tractor-trailer rig to haul sensitive electronics across the country. And during the Vietnam War, he hauled bombs to McCord Air Force Base in Washington State. Sometimes he carried nuclear warheads to the submarine base in Bangor, Washington on Hood Canal. But that's a secret. 
Wayne always stopped in Bozeman, Montana on the last leg of his trips to have a few drinks to smooth out the rest of the road. If it was Wednesday, he'd call the Killians and ask if someone could pick up a bottle of white and a bottle of brown for him. He, he knew he couldn't make it there before the state liquor store closed, but if he pushed it a little, he could be there in time to watch Kung Fu on TV. The white was vodka, the brown was bourbon. Wayne had broken his back and could not drive. Dylan, I thought, given Wayne's dilemma, that it would be a proper and Christian thing to do to take him to Wallace for a tune-up. Dell and I could not ourselves get service in Wallace, as we were only 16 and 15 respectively, but we could drive, and we could help Wayne navigate the stairs once we got there. On our arrival, Wayne said he was hungry, and since we were going to the Luxette anyway, we stopped in the restaurant downstairs for burgers. Waddling Wayne up the few stairs to the cafe gave us an indication of what was in store when we would make the final ascent to the heavenly delights awaiting above. Once inside, we propped Wayne up against a wall and took our seats next to him in a booth. The waitress was friendly and very helpful with Wayne, making a little table for him with fold-up legs and a tray. The restaurant was warm, and Wayne began to thaw. His thick glasses fogged up along with the glass in the windows. When the door opened again, it let in a gust of wind, a gale of laughter, and four very large, very cold snowmobilers. Now, snowmobilers in Idaho are pretty much like bikers anywhere else, only colder. Beers and mustaches frozen with snot and snooze, snow caked on up to the knees, hands frozen in the shape of claws from holding handlebars, hearing an equilibrium shot from the noise and vibration of the engines. These are the similarities between the two groups. The point of difference with snowmobilers is that which is missing, usually teeth and fingers. Playing grab-ass with formerly hibernating bears at high speeds across the frozen landscape requires copious quantities of liquor. You can't drink beer very well on a snowmobile, but a couple of pints of peppermint schnapps or George Dickel's sour mash will fit very nicely into the breast pockets of snowsuits, and the contents will not freeze under any circumstances. Ordering three or four hamburgers each and a big plate of fries necessitated the condiment of choice for such fare, ketchup. And all would have been well if the ketchup had come in a bottle, or better, one of those plastic squirt bottles that seem to be in every diner in the country, except this one. This restaurant, tragically, was among the first that served ketchup in those little packets that you have to tear open at one end. Now, missing fingers and hands frozen into claws do not permit the opening of tiny packets of anything. It was the biggest of the four who finally smacked a packet with his fist on the counter, spraying red nectar across the pie cooler and into a milk dispenser. This drew guffaws that grew foreboding, as the wagers began for distance, particular targets, and numbers of packets spewed simultaneously. They had plenty of ammunition. The waitress had unwittingly provided two baskets full of ketchup packets. Dell and I overheard a bet made over who could hit the waitress's ass. 
When she exited the kitchen, all four fists hit the countertop in unison. It wasn't their ass that was hit, but her entire front. Laughter drowned out the Muzak version of lazy, hazy days of summer, and the waitress ran back into the kitchen crying. The cook was a stout fellow, the kind of man you just knew could consume his weight in prime rib. He made an amusing sight covered in ketchup. Dell and I started getting nervous as it was plain we were the only living targets remaining. Wayne smiled. The first cop who came in through the door didn't even touch the floor on the way out. Neither did the second or third. It was cops four through ten with the aid of an Idaho State Patrolman who finally restored harmony. A dozen hookers, smoking and gawking, with too much makeup and too little clothing, stood in the sub-zero temperatures. They'd come down to see what all the commotion was about. They spoke freely with the cops, who they seemed to know by name. Or better. The rest of our night was spent in the Wallace Police Station. We had to give our statements, then wait and see if the cops had more questions. Wayne did not get laid, but he did get sober. Wayne was unfamiliar with the surroundings of sobriety and was therefore feeling a little lost. Why are we in jail? He slurred and faded back to what we lovingly called Wayne Consciousness. We were told we could leave just before the sun came up. Standing in the parking lot, strapping Wayne onto the lockers of the truck, we witnessed two visions of marvel. The first was the inspiration for the name Idaho, a Native American word that meant sunrise over the mountains. Idaho was a sacred place, and you didn't have to be indigenous to be awestruck or need further proof of the existence of God. The second vision was that of four partly clothed snowmobilers running breakneck from the jail to their crew cab Dodge 4x4 and trailer loaded with snowmobiles, yelling, go, 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 as they piled in, all four tires spinning wildly as the jailkeeper came running after them, shouting in some foreign accent, you come back here, you some of bitches, you piece my beds, you sheet my beds, I kill you. There were lots of flashing lights on the road back to Coeur d'Alene that morning, Flashing lights on top of snow plows clearing the road. Flashing lights on top of three or four cop cars that had stopped near an abandoned crew cab Dodge 4x4 with no occupants and an empty snowmobile trailer. And flashing lights from the road crew vehicles repairing bent-over reflector standards along quite a stretch of highway. Uncle Wayne was pretty drunk by the time we secured him to the floor in front of the fireplace at the Killian's. We left him with his head propped up on Amanda Jane, who heaved and farted, and as Wayne smiled and drifted off, fully believing he'd gotten laid in Wallace. Dell and I made our way to Elsie's for breakfast. Dell lived a country block down the road from me on Elm Street in Coeur d'Alene, so by the time I dropped him off and put a tent over the truck, it was time for school. Now, that's the end of part one. Please subscribe to get the next chapter and never miss an episode of The Boombox Show. I'm Joseph Dean Coburn. Thanks for listening. Because TV sucks. The Boombox.